Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sustaining Open Source Design. Was it Sustaining Open Source Design? Sustain Open Source Design? Nobody knows, but it's all right because the experience is right either way. We are here to talk about the confluence of design and open source. How do they work together? What are the interactions like? And what happens to people who work in both fields? I'm really excited about our guests today because not only are they working in both fields, they also work in space. I tried to make a joke. It didn't work. Let's move on. We have other panelists I want to introduce before we talk to our guests because they'll be talking most of the time and these voices may pop up and you may not know who they are. So... Today, I am joined by my fellow host, Memo Esparza. Memo, how are you? Hello, Richard. I'm great. Delany from sunny Mexico. Always sunny Mexico. I've yet to hear you really, really complain about the weather. Errol Fox, calling from another beautiful weather place. How are you doing today? I am good. I am calling in from mild UK. Here smiles it is, indeed. Django Skarupa, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I've got the windows open. It is so wonderful and nice out in New England today that I may just take a walk after this. That sounds great. I'm, of course, Richard Litauer. I'm calling from Scotland, which looks about as depressing as possible outside. Unsurprising. But our guest today, while sometimes thinking about interstellar things where the weather doesn't matter, is the wonderful Jen Collar. Jen Collar is a user experience designer at the MAST Network Telescope. I don't know. We're going to figure it out. Before we get into that, Jen, how are you doing today? Hello. I'm doing well. I also received a, a light sunburn this morning because the weather is so nice today. Awesome. I'm really envious. All right. So I clearly don't know exactly what you do or where you do it. Can you fill me in on the deets? So I work at the Mikulski Archive for Space Telescopes, and we call it MAST for short all the time. So that's located at the Space Telescope Science Institute, because apparently astronomers and I think scientists in general just really love acronyms and very long titles. But basically, where I work and what I do, it's a educational institution. So it's a nonprofit, but it's not a school. I don't think it's considered a not-for-profit it's kind of a government agency, but it's not. It's a mix of all these things. And clearly, I hardly know what it is. But we do get all of our funding from public sources like NASA and other places like that. So it means that all the work we do has to be open. And the data that we get to the archive that I work at is well, not quite all, but almost entirely free and open and will be at some point. So the archive I work at is an archive of space telescope data. So we hear about space telescopes like the Hubble, James Webb, Kepler, TESS. So all these space telescopes, right, they're out in space. We think it's great. It has something to do with science. But how does it actually help science? What the, the data, they takes lots of beautiful images and not so beautiful images, lots of scientific information coming through these telescopes, gets beamed down to Earth, goes through a convoluted pipeline, 
And then how did the scientists get to it to do their research? Well, we collected all in an archive and the scientists and anyone, because it's public, anyone can go to this archive and access the data from these telescopes. So that's where I work. I work on at an archive that you can use to search for space telescope data. That is really, really cool. So you work at an archive. How many scientists work at the archive with you? Like how many colleagues do you have there? And then how many users do you have who don't work with you, but who access and use the archive? There's roughly 30-ish people who work in the archive that I work at. So the Institute has, it's a much larger number, maybe around 800 people. But so we're a subset. And about half of the people I work with are developers and testers. And then the other half are scientists. So I guess roughly 10, 15 scientists I work directly with. But then at the Institute, there's a lot of other scientists as well. Very academic place. I've never met so many people with PhDs before. People with PhDs are regular people. It turns out though, I learned this recently. We're scared and confused and then we get a PhD somehow. So you said like scientific stuff, like data and my kind of design or the kind of design that I do, as I think most other designers also kind of share this is like, oh, the data, the stuff, what are we sort of consuming as designers or what are we working with as like information and what does that information need to have done to it in order to meet the needs of the people that want to do other stuff with it. So I think what I'm asking is, what do people want to do with that data? And how do you facilitate that process as a user experience designer? So we have a lot of different types of data. And so I'm not an astronomer, so I can't speak in detail about all the different types, but there's something called time series, which is a series of events over time, how bright light is. So it ends up looking like a line graph. Then there's also more traditional images. There's spectra, cubes. I, I still don't fully understand what that is. But there's, so there's all sorts of different things that scientists might want to access for different reasons. And so something that I've learned while working here is that astronomy is a very varied career, very varied field. There's people studying all sorts of things. I know someone who only studies interstellar dust. I don't know what that is, but I suppose it's enough that you can go get a PhD about dust in space. And, you know, there's people who study exoplanets or specifically atmospheres and exoplanets or whatever particular field people get into, astrobiology or just general physics. So there's a lot of different things that people want to do. I think it's one of those situations where people get so in-depth with their particular field that a lot of times they might not even understand what the next person's doing, even though they both are astronomers or astrophysicists, but they have very different backgrounds. So when I'm designing, I need to be thinking about all of these people who might be coming to our archive for very different reasons. So there's two main focuses I have that I, I think about on a high level. And so it's data searching. So let's say someone comes to the archive and they already know what they want because they have a very particular thing that they're studying and they maybe even were a principal investigator on some telescope time. They know they just want to get at that data and they know what it is. So I want to make it as easy and quick for them to get in and get it and get out. And then there's this other concept that's more about exploration. And so maybe someone doesn't know what they want. They just have a general area of interest. They want to see what data even exists. 
we have a, a lot of data from over 15 telescopes and a lot of them are really old and people haven't heard of. So maybe one of them has data that might be relevant to someone, but they would never have known to look for it. So that's also something I'm thinking about with design is how do we lead people to new things that they might not have known they were looking for, but actually is very valuable to them. And so I suppose that there's a third area too. So that's within the archive, but then there's also the analysis part. So that's just finding the data. But then after that, what do they do? So I also do some work on data analysis tools and designing what, how those tools work. And I'm super fan of space stuff. So I have a million questions, <laughs> but uh, I will start with two. How did you end up there? <laughs> I think that's my first question. I'm super interested, like how following your design career, you end up in that kind of stuff, because I believe that science, it's a huge area for designers to have impact in. So really interested in, you know, how other designers can also follow that same path and, and end up in science. I think that's super cool. Okay. Well, I totally agree with you. I think this is an untapped area for designers. I think I might be one of the only designers working in astronomy at all. I possibly met, heard of another one in Australia, but it's really rare. It's very rare. So it's not a very explored space. The way I got this job, when I went to school, I, I knew I was interested in science. I studied medical illustration. Now, I was going for more of a traditional illustration background, but I did get involved in tech while in school. So I got a little bit of science background. I was interested dabbling. But then my first job out of school that I managed to get was just a traditional tech job at a very boring corporation that is very old and slowly dying. But, you know, it was my first job out of school. It was in user experience design. And it was even in gamification. So it was a really great first job, but it wasn't the subject matter was not interesting at all. I didn't want to stay there long term, but I, I did stay for a few years, kind of grew my skills. So my partner is from Baltimore area and his mom knew I was looking for jobs. And so very subtly, and so she still lives in Baltimore, very subtly, she started sending me job openings in Baltimore. And, and I had no idea why she was doing it. And no ulterior motive, I'm sure. But she was sending me a lot of jobs that weren't quite relevant, so, you know, not design. I don't think a lot of people understand the difference between user experience and development if they're not working in tech. And so, but then finally, she just happened to send one design job and it was to Space Telescope. And it sounded really cool. So I applied and it worked out. But I think the interesting thing is I didn't find it myself in this case, but I don't think a lot of people think to look a lot of designers, they're looking at all the traditional places where does they expect designers to work. But designers can work basically anywhere. So if there is a topic or subject that you're interested in, it's actually really great to try to explore and, and find the place that needs a designer, but doesn't even know it. I got a lot of student jobs doing that. So I, I think, and it's like totally acceptable to cold call people too, and, you know, just reach out and see if they need a designer. And suddenly they might realize that they actually do. And that's how I got involved in open source as well, there was a project at uh, my university that I, I just reached out and asked if they needed a designer. And then they said, oh, yes, that actually would be really helpful. And that really definitely started me in this direction. Second question, are you focusing on the data consumption of the telescopes and yeah, these different inputs? Or are you also including in your work like some visual outputs, images and space photos and that kind of stuff? So. 
the main part of my job, I'm focusing on the data after it's gone through a pipeline and a lot of adjustments have already been done to it. And I'm just focused on getting scientists and whomever, whatever users of our archive to the data. And so that connection. Recently, though, I have become more involved in the design and conceptualization of how we visualize data. And so I say visualize, but I actually mean sonify because I've been working on sonification and data sonification and and alternate ways that we can consume data and, and learn to understand it. So I've sort of started branching out into data uh, itself, but that has been a recent thing. I'm so glad that you got to data sonification right as I was about to ask you about it, because I have been obsessed with other methods of quantifying and interpreting and ways that we can experience and interact with data. I mean, really since, since high school, since I first found like recordings of magnetic waves as imagined through audio from early space probes. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit to your experience with that and how you think about and visualize, or maybe visualize is even the wrong word, but how you prepare data for sensory analysis. So those are great questions about sonification. I'm very excited you asked. Let me start by explaining what sonification is, and we could even listen to some examples. So sonification, you could hear, it's the same word uh, dichotomy as visualization, right? So what is visualization? Visualization is taking data, information, and representing it visually in some way for us to understand it. And it's not a literal representation. So if I have data about a dog, I'm not, a visualization isn't a photo of a dog. A visualization could be a bar chart, a graph of some sort, lines. It could be ticks representing numbers or, you know, we see them everywhere. When you watch the news, the weather, there's a map and the colors represent different temperatures. So visualization is all about using visual cues to show data. So colors to temperature, for instance, on the map. So what is sonification? Sonification is doing the same thing, but instead of using visual cues, you use sound cues. And there's a lot of different ways you could do this because there's a lot of different aspects of sound. And I think any musician could speak to that really deeply. But what we were focusing on was very simple and straightforward, and it was using pitch to determine how much light was coming in. So we focused really specifically on time series data. So I mentioned that earlier. So a light curve is also, they're also referred to as light curves. And so what that is, let's say I point a telescope at a star and it watches it over a period of time. And it's all it's focusing on is how much light is hitting the lens. So at first, maybe the star is a little dim. And then after a few days, it gets very bright and then it gets dimmer again and it gets brighter. And so over time, I'd have this list of numbers of how bright the star was. And so that's usually represented as a line graph. So, you know, the higher up the dot is on the graph means more light, you know, lower down, less light. And so then the line oscillates up and down depending on how bright the star was at that particular time. So since one of the axes is time, it actually makes it really easy to to sonify because if you're listening to sound, time is inherently part of that because you're listening over time. It doesn't have to be that way, but it does have a very direct correlation, so it's nice. So the way we did it was if the star was emitting more light, a brighter light, we showed a higher pitch. 
And then if it was emitting less light, it was a deeper pitch. And so you could start to hear the shape of the light curve. Now, this is not something you can understand right away. It takes a little bit of training. It's fairly straightforward. But like visualizations, we learn to understand visualizations our whole lives. So if we're learning to understand sonifications, we could actually hear a lot of information. And maybe there's even some information we can hear that would be more difficult to see in certain cases. Okay, so I have a bunch of examples of this, and they're actually on our website of the software we're working on, which it's called Astronify, by the way, Astronify. So you could listen to a whole bunch of these, but I want to share one about a flare. So what is a flare? A flare is actually an explosion on the surface of a star. So you can imagine that a light curve would pick this up really strongly. It would be very obvious, right? Because an explosion causes a lot of light. So uh, when you're looking at a light curve of a flare, there's a really obvious blip that goes up super high and then it comes back down. And so the same thing when you're sonifying it, you're hearing a baseline star, which has a few oscillations in sound. And then suddenly there's a really high pitch jump and then it comes back down pretty quickly. That's it. That's awesome. Cool. Hopefully you're able to hear that, listeners. We almost never get to record audio, so that is the coolest thing. Well, Jen, I had this question. It's a bit out there. Sorry, but like, I just want to know, you're using sound and you've used light in terms of images. Why not combine them and then have people play a really weird video game where they walk through a world seeing different visualizations? Is that possible? Could we make that happen? Because I think that would just be really, really cool. I definitely think it's possible. So, I mean, to step back a moment with sonification, one of the exciting things about it is accessibility and that it could allow people who might not be able to see or to analyze data visually for whatever reason, might give another alternative method for analysis. That said, that is not the only exciting thing about sonification because it just, it opens up a new form of analysis for anybody. And it's potentially really powerful if we combine it with visuals. So you can imagine combining sonification and visualization and using it for your data analysis in some way. And I don't really know what that looks like. It could be, maybe it is three-dimensional. I mean, a very exciting thing about sound is that it can be represented three-dimensionally pretty easily, which isn't always true of visualization. So it actually starts to get a little bit hard to represent things in 3D in a flat image pretty quickly, but that's not as true with sound. So the idea of a video game where you're actually interacting in a three-dimensional space, hearing things and seeing things, it's fascinating. There's definitely potential there. Jen, you mentioned accessibility. And I wanted to ask you if you are thinking about how accessible this data is and if it should be accessible for science practitioners or the general public, or what do you mean by that? And to follow up on that, how the science community can make this kind of scientific information more approachable and accessible. So it's a lot of things that you just said and, and more. I think about this a lot. I think it's the core of what my whole job is and why I'm excited to be a designer in science. It's all about accessibility. And I think it's also related to open source. It's pretty interconnected. So, okay, let's break down accessibility. There's the element of accessibility where we want people of some sort to be able to get to data. So there's the design around how we make that as straightforward and easy as possible. 
so then that has to do with level of education, right? In general, our archives main users are scientists and they do have a certain level of education that might allow them to understand complex topics around astronomy. And then that's our, our main user base. But we are also interested in making our data accessible to anyone because it is free. Anyone can access it. But even within education, of course, there's different levels of that. There might be a student who, maybe a high school student who's interested, maybe a college student who's taken a few astronomy classes, but doesn't have the same background as someone who is in the middle of their PhD. And then, you know, as you go up through your career, you get more and more comfortable with the subject matter. So that's always a balance that I'm trying to walk between making things as simple and straightforward for someone who might be a newcomer and making sure it's welcoming to them and not using confusing language, making it obvious what you're supposed to do. But then also it's a complex field and there's a lot of complex things that people want to do and need to do as part of their research. So also catering to people who are ready to do those complex things and have that level of education. We also think about internet accessibility. So imagining that some people might not be accessing our data from high-speed internet. Maybe they're not at a fancy institution that gives them that access. So another part of accessibility that I think about a lot is people might be accessing it from different locations. People access our data from all around the world. And we don't want to only be catering to people at the, the fanciest institutions, the academic fancy people. We don't want to be snobby in our data. We're not only giving it to students at Ivy League, American schools, uh, or European institutions. We want anyone to be able to use it anywhere. So with the design and development, we need to think about bandwidth, things like that. And also the fact that someone might not have uh, faculty helping them along the way. So we need to make sure that we're giving the tutorials and, and making things clear and giving access to resources that maybe someone isn't getting through their school. So then there's the part of accessibility that I think most people associate, which is with disability. And it, it's interesting in astronomy because astronomy, I think most of the time is involved sitting in front of a computer and doing data analysis development. It's a very computer heavy field. If you're able to use a computer, there isn't a great reason you shouldn't be able to do astronomy if you have an interest in it. Astronomy is not inherently visual anymore. I think a lot of people assume they imagine someone staring at the night sky through a telescope, you know, pondering the cosmos based on what they see. That's not really the main way that people are doing research anymore. It's a lot of numbers and high amounts of data and data processing. So I think it's pretty interesting when you talk about blindness and low vision in astronomy, because a lot of students actually start there because when for science requirements, a lot of times chemistry is not deemed a safe environment for a lab space for blind students. So a lot of them get pushed into astronomy. And I've spoken to several people and seen examples of this on the internet, unfortunately, where people get excited, tried to major in it, and then end up leaving the field because a lot of the data analysis tools and the data access is really inaccessible. And so, as I said, there's no inherent reason it should be that way. And there's definitely interest. So something that I've been focusing on and thinking about is either through sonification or improving our tools to make sure they're accessible. How do we make it accessible in that context for screen readers, for magnifiers, for whatever assistive technology people might be using to access our software? 
That's a huge amount of consideration and thought put into accessibility and varied needs and varied data for different individuals. How do you balance that in the effort of producing, you know, clean user experience for the max number of people? Like, what are your considerations there? So there's a few different methods we've been employing to try to deal with that because Obviously, the more features you try to shove into a piece of software or a website, it starts to get really busy and confusing, more difficult to use. So one of the ways that we've been trying to balance is when what we decide to make a a user experience for, so a UI, an interface, what we build a visual interface for, and then and what point we push people into other tools, such as a Jupyter Notebook or there's other notebooks or APIs or development tools that you can use to start analysis or working with data. So that's been something we consider, we, we start to balance. So what do we build out as a visual feature in an interface? What do we choose to use screen real estate for and put up front for users? And when do we push them and say, okay, now you're getting into a very advanced specific thing. You have to do that in a different way. Something else that I've been doing a, a lot of design thinking about is when you choose to show something to the user. So what do you show them first? And then when do you reveal more information? So a really a key thing that I've been focusing on is hiding a lot of things at first, but then as you get further in your workflow, then revealing something, the next step, so that you're not ambushed by everything all at once, because that can be just very intimidating. I think just showing up and, and looking at something that is entirely overwhelming that's not accessible. But walking someone through it and only showing the logical thing over time has been another way of combating that. I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction as we get to the end of our time together. And it's a combined question, in a sense. I'm going to try and keep it short. And I was thinking about what you were saying earlier on about there's not many other designers that are doing what you do or similar to your field. And I'm not going to presume, but that sounded pretty lonely, maybe. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about open source is that it has community and can have community, depending on, you know, how things are done. And also connected to that, and here's where the combined question part comes in. I think about designers, particularly within entering into the space of open source and how often designers, a lot of designers of all different kinds are not really, what's the word that I'm looking for, challenged or they get bored, right? I know so many designers that are so fed up and bored of like their corporate gig where they're just designing a shopping cart experience for another customer. And open source, to some extent, gives them a chance to explore something really unique, really exciting, something that they've maybe left back at high school or at college. Maybe they did take that one class in astrophysics and really loved it, but then kind of went into design and thought, well, I'll never be able to combine those two things. And the last part of the combined question, which is really the question is about how would you and how do you bring designers into this space is about one thing that I've realized about designers is that they love, to some extent, they love this space where design fiction can happen. 
And often this that space where design science fiction can happen. And I'm curious as to like, the first part of the question is, tell me about what your ideal scenario of bringing the design community into the open source space where you work is. And the second part of the question is, if you can talk a little bit about whether like design science fiction comes into that space and whether you get to play in that space personally or whether others could. I have a few different thoughts about this. The first is there is actually a whole group at Space Telescope Science Institute called the Office of Public Outreach. And there are a, a whole bunch of artists, animators, designers who work in that group. I tend to work with only developers and scientists, but there are positions and, and jobs that exist that they tend to be in the outreach field. They tend not to be in the direct science field, though. And usually the focus is on communication. And so how do we communicate to a more general audience about the exciting data that we have about the, this exciting telescope mission? And so they take data and do some really amazing, beautiful things with it. They make beautiful images of space. They do some very cool animations. They take 2D images and imagine what it would be like if you're actually flying through them. So there's some Hubble images that have been turned into animations. Very cool stuff. So I think that's one common way that artists get involved in science is through outreach and communication. A more experimental way that I was involved in recently was I ran with one of my colleagues, we ran a summer program last summer, so almost a year ago, wow. We got funding to hire a small group of high school students to take some of the sonifications that we had produced and turn it into art. Because that was actually the thing that excited me about sonification initially, this idea of, wow, there's so much value here and just an art, forget science. There's a lot of cool things that could be made with this. So we hired a group of students. It was a mix of blind and sighted students. And they all worked on projects using dissonification, inspired by the sonification. One person did a painting of imagining kind of, it's funny, taking a, a visual informed a sonification, which informed the visual again, but they did a, a three-dimensional painting so you could also feel it. We had several people do musical pieces, taking the sonifications and building a whole song around it. I could put the put a link to these student works there online. And it turned out pretty cool. It was a, a small experiment for the summer to see what some students would make of sonifications and how that would inspire art. And it was a fun experiment and we got some cool pieces out of it. You sound really confident and you sound really awesome. And it sounds like you're having a lot of fun. All those things are great and they're super, super cool. And I know that this like space telescope is a good place to work. I had a friend who worked there, Arvin Smith. I'm surprised he hasn't been on the podcast before. He did a lot of really cool stuff with data management. I miss there. Arvin. <laughs> I know. I love Arvin too. He's, he's great. One of the questions I have for you is I'm trying to think about what's difficult and one of the reasons for this podcast is to talk about how open source and design don't play together well all the time. A lot of designers don't feel like they're developers. A lot of developers don't feel like designers are worth talking to. A lot of designers feel like developers are hard-headed troglodytes. And I guess my question for you is, what's difficult for you? Because, I mean, it's great to share art and make everything awesome. But like, what's really hard and what would you wish maybe would change for the better? 
well, I don't want to give a false impression of <laughs> life. It's complicated everywhere, right? There's no one place that's suddenly going to solve all your problems just because you work at a place and it sounds interesting and exciting. I don't really think that's how the world works. I am excited about science in general. So a lot of the projects I'm on are fun, but something that's difficult about being a designer in a space where there's not a lot of other designers is you sort of have to pave your own way and in some cases force yourself into places where you're not necessarily, I think wanted is the wrong word because people do want their work to be easier to use. They want people to like using the things they build. So I think people see value in design, but a lot of times they're confused about where your place is. And so I definitely had to kind of forge my own path a bit and force myself into certain development situations where they had never worked with a designer before. And so that definitely took time. I didn't just arrive on the first day and suddenly I was just working on all these projects that were so exciting and I was making great contributions to them. It actually took some time to find my way to work on a first project and establish how we would all work together and how design would be a part of our process and building software. And then from there, once you get comfortable and it is easier to be confident and sort of insert yourself or see opportunities where you can help. So suddenly you find yourself in that position, but I don't think you ever just get a job and you're in that position immediately. It's kind of finding your way there. I think a negative thing, this is not really about open source. I don't love being on a computer all the time. And I think working in user experience design, I don't think it's all design. Maybe there's some more traditional arts, but where you don't have to. But I have to be on the computer constantly. And the pandemic has only made that so much worse. You know, every meeting that would have been in person suddenly is on video. I've started going back into the office, so that's been really helpful. But I think the amount of time that I spend on a computer is a really negative downside to this work. I think we all feel you on that one. The thing I would suggest is MIT Media Lab has this thing which can make physical stuff out of any sort of algorithm, if I recall correctly. So maybe we could have like a Play-Doh version of the Sonoscape where like you like feel it in your hands instead. I don't know. I'm just, I'm trying to get away from my computer. I'm trying anything, anything that'll work. I think that's a really good answer. And I think you're right that it isn't always easy for designers and you do have to try to fit in. Like you said, you didn't even think this job existed. Someone sent it to you. It wasn't something you were looking for per se. And I also think that's really common. Astronomy is not something that people normally just go into and get into. It's a really weird bag. And so is design and so is open source. So I think we're all kind of there together. I also think that design specifically has a complicated relationship with creativity. So I think a lot of what you're talking about around creative expression that is filtered or goes through a design process or filter. I think that I personally, as a designer, don't quite know what my connection is to creativity anymore. And I think one of the reasons I started doing stuff in open source was to be like, is this a space where I can be feel like I'm being creative? Because I used to be creative with my design and I used to be creative with art and things like that. So it's great to hear that there is a space for design <laughs> space for designers where they can be creative and that there is a lot of exploration as well. So I'd love to see more open source projects that really embrace this maybe tension and, and maybe exploration aspect of creativity and design and open source. Maybe there is a something that can happen there. 
I love what you just said. And I also another struggle that that reminds me of is I think when I grow up, I want to be an artist with a capital A. And what does that mean? You know, when you're a kid, you think that's so simple. Oh, I'm just going to paint and someone will pay me and I'll be able to afford to live. And that is very difficult. So I really love user experience design. I think it uses that part of my brain, but it also doesn't feel like art a lot of the time. And so I think for a long time, I was dissatisfied with that or a bit self-conscious feeling like I, I'm not actually an artist. Is this even art? Is this even design? What is this? It's just tech. And working on it all day, it takes a, a similar amount of creative energy. So if you do have personal art projects that you want to pursue, I find that a lot of times I don't have that creative part of my brain doesn't have energy anymore because I'm, I'm putting it all towards my job. But luckily now I'm interested in my job. So it doesn't feel like a waste as much anymore. But I think in the past, I really struggled with that. I would feel like I used up all this creative energy on something that is so boring. And then I had nothing left for myself. So that, that's definitely a, a struggle. But I think now as I've been working longer and kind of wrestling with that, I, I think I'm more at peace with it because I don't know, like what's an artist anyway? It doesn't mean anything. It can mean whatever you want. Your art can be just how you impact the world and how you apply design to the world in a creative way. I wish you could see, oh, listeners, there's also lots of nods from us as well. I think this is probably a good place to end it, Jen. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm glad you have a space where you feel you can actually perform that art and make that art at work sometimes, not all the time, of course, but it's really great that you get to do such cool things. And I just love your work and I think it's really exciting and please keep it up. For those listeners who want to learn more about it, where can they follow you and Space Telescope on the web? So on Twitter, you could follow Space Telescope Science Institute, the entire institute at Space Telescope. And you could follow the Mast Archive at Mast News. All right. And all of those links will be in the show notes. We have one more thing. Yes, we do. Spotlight, the really cool part of the show where we talk about things that are not ourselves. Generally, we focus on projects, people, places, nouns which need more light shown on them or love sent their way. Things which have helped us out or are just plain awesome. Errol, what is your spotlight today? Well, as we were talking, I wanted to find something that was themed. So I found an open source project that is a coordination tool for your, all of your discovered space stations and base locations across your saves in No Man's Sky, which is an amazing video game where you get to fly around space and listen to an amazing soundtrack by 65 Days of Static and just feel like you're a full space pilot. And there's open source projects that help you live your best life in space on No Man's Sky. So that's my spotlight for today. Nice. Awesome. Neville? My spotlight for today is not an open source tool, not a web page. It's actually a book that changed my life. And thanks to this out of this world podcast, just reminded its name is Nightfall. It was originally a story by Zach Asimov, but rewritten by another writer, making it into a whole book. It's a novel and it has a lot of science, sci-fi stuff. So do check it out. Nice. Thank you. I'm going to go with Teching Xia, which I'm probably mispronouncing. Teching Xia is um, also known as Sam, a master performance art 
I think of him a lot whenever I think about art. He locked himself in a cage in New York for a year without talking, writing, reading anything and had someone notarize it, took one photo of the entire thing. And that sounds like heaven. So I'm just grateful that he did that. Django, what's your spotlight? I have two and I'll hit them very quickly. One of them is an open source project that I love in my own creative life to have easy access to creative fonts and creative resources in a way that I don't have to spend my hard-earned money for them that I can support in additional ways. And so Open Foundry is a repository of open source typefaces, and it is marvelous. I've been using them for a little while now, and they're great. 10 out of 10 would absolutely recommend go support them. And based on the conversations that we were having near the tail end of this podcast, I really wanted to recommend some of my favorite performance art, which is Lamont Young's Compositions 1960, which are a series of compositions, and I'm putting those in quotes, dear listeners, that are each invitations by performers to do some very strange things on stage. One of them invites the performer to attempt to push a piano through the nearest wall and the performance is over when the performer is tired or the piano has successfully made it entirely through the wall. And I love all of these performance scripts and they're just fantastic ways to reframe the way you see yourself as an artist and the way you interact with your audience. All right. Little whirlpools in the middle of the ocean. Thank you, Django. Jen, what is your spotlight today? So I'm going to focus on accessibility I want to recommend a really fantastic book I read earlier this year called Sitting Pretty by Rebecca Tausig. She also has a really great Instagram book, but it's, uh, I think, a very fantastic, accessible read into accessibility and understanding other people's, their lives who might have different situations than you. Also, on accessibility, my favorite font that I use a lot is Atkinson's Hyperlegible. And that is free. And I just use it all the time now because it's hyper legible. All right, Jen, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed it. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed it too. If you're interested in talking more about design or open source, do check out our discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org. If you're interested in talking to us at all, if you have any comments, go to sustain at OSS. We have not abstained from social media, although we probably all wish we did. If you want to just send us an email, you can do so at podcast at sustainoss.org. We will check those messages and respond back to you if you'd like to be a guest or you know someone who would be a great guest. Or if you just have any comments about space and want to send them on to Jen or us, like or design or accessibility, please do. We aim to be accessible. Thank you so much. And Jen, this really was a pleasure. Thank you. Good luck with everything. Thanks for having me.